All right, Isaiah chapter 13, as we continue our study together in Isaiah together, it kind of begins, if you would, another a new section in Isaiah's prophecy together. We'll see chapters 13 through around chapters 23 to 24 uh, give to us now prophecies against multiple Gentile nations. And of course, when we say Gentile nations, we're referring to those who are not the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And though God spoke very strongly in this prophecy, we've seen already and will continue to through his own chosen people, Israel, to the northern kingdom, things as well to the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, God also has things to say to the other nations who were troubling the nation of Israel and who were in some ways living in uh, rebellion and wickedness as well. And chapters 13 now through chapters 23, 24, about the next 11 or so chapters, uh, we have these prophecies mainly of judgment against these nations that God gives. And it's interesting that as God begins to pronounce these judgments through Isaiah the prophet, he kind of moves westward starting from over in Babylon and then he kind of progresses uh, over and God expresses his burden of disapproval and displeasure against these different nations. Now, uh, what's interesting is as God begins now this burden here, it says, against Babylon. And chapters 13 and 14 will deal with that. And we'll try and, if we could, uh, by the grace of God, you pray for me and I'll do my best to move maybe a little bit more rapidly through some of these chapters uh, just to uh, lighten the load a little bit because there is obviously some heavy things here and descriptions of God's judgment. But chapters 13 and 14, uh, Lord willing, if we can look at them this evening, God directly speaks things predominantly to the nation of Babylon. If you notice in chapter 13, verse 1, it begins by telling us the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. Now, take note of that. It actually tells us that Isaiah apparently was seeing these things. So there's some degree of a vision that God is giving to Isaiah, the prophet. He's not just hearing things from the Lord and then sharing those things after God speaks to him, but it seems in some ways he's actually in the spirit being given the ability to see these things. He's receiving a supernatural vision from the Lord, and he's conveying these things. Now, we're going to notice this phrase numerous times. You see it there in verse 1, the burden against Babylon. And that term burden there in the Hebrew literally just refers to something that is very weighty. So the idea here is Isaiah's conveying uh, something very heavy that's been impressed upon his heart from the Lord for the nation of Babylon. We might use the term sometimes, man, that's, that's a really weighty thing or a heavy revy. That's the idea here. Is there something kind of weighty and heavy that is impressed upon his heart and it's something heavy that he knows that God wants him to be able to share here as the Spirit is directing him as the Lord's spokesman and the prophet of God here. So particularly, this is a prophecy against Babylon. Now, what is very unique is at the time that Isaiah is actually saying these things here, historically, chapters 13 and 14, these predominant things to the nation of Babylon, at this time, Babylon is indeed a nation, but they're really only that. They are just a nominal nation among other nations that existed at that time. They are not yet a world-dominant empire. Assyria was still the world-dominant empire at the time, that Isaiah is actually pronouncing these things, 
But what's unique is that God, showing that he is the eternal God, he dwells outside of the time continuum that you and I live in, uh, God indicates far in advance his understanding of their rise to power. God already knows that Assyria will soon move off the stage historically, that they will be conquered by Babylon. In other words, God knows that Babylon will be raised up as the next world empire. They will conquer Assyria. And then we're going to see even beyond that, God even begins to speak about, as we're going to read here, God begins to speak already about their fall in judgment. So they haven't even risen to the world stage yet as far as the next world empire. God speaks about them rising to power, and he already speaks about them being dethroned and judged because of the wrong things that they will do in their wickedness and pride, and then even describes who that's going to come from, the Medo-Persians, which were the next empire after Babylon. So as we look at these things, it's just a reminder to us that God knows all world affairs. He knows what's going to unfold in the future. And he superintends over everything that's happening. He controls the lifting up of kings and the putting down of kings. And he's superintending over world history. Even among people who do not know him and do not serve him, he nonetheless is still superintending over world affairs. And in some ways, I think that's just a very helpful and encouraging thing to remember. So this is the word of the Lord against Babylon. They haven't even risen to power yet, but God's already describing now their dethronement and their judgment he says, verse 2, to Babylon, lift up a banner on the high mountain, raise your voice to them, wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. And then verse 3, here's God's reference to the judgment and destruction coming upon the Babylonian empire. I have commanded my sanctified ones. Now, again, remember the word sanctified literally just means set apart. So God's saying, I have given a command to those who I have set apart, those who I've selected and set apart. I have also called, he says, verse 3, my mighty ones for anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation, the noise of a multitude in the mountains, like that of many people. The idea here is like a vast army uh, coming in now to make conquest a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of the nations gathered together. Verse 4, the Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country from the end of heaven. The idea is from the far east. The Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land, referring to the whole land of Babylon. Now take notice of the language here God's describing Verse 3, that he was the one who had set apart these particular people, the, the nation that was going to come and conquer Babylon and bring judgment upon them, that he had commanded them, that is, he had put it into their minds supernaturally to come and to make the conquest that they did. He refers to this Medo-Persian empire that will come and conquer Babylon as his army for battle, verse 4, coming from a far country from the far end of heaven and functioning as, notice, his weapons, as his army to bring about what he wants on the world stage. Now, again, what he's describing here, as I said, is the, the empire that will come to power after Babylon, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Medo-Persian Empire, we know historically, would conquer Babylon in 539 B.C., 
So we're, we're trajectory going out here past the Assyrian Empire to the Babylonian Empire. Now the fall of the Babylonian Empire and God's describing the, the rising up the Medo-Persians. And we know that happened historically. Daniel chapter 5 particularly refers to the account of that and how at the time when the Medo-Persian Empire were surrounding uh, the Babylonians, Belshazzar and those who were in their arrogance having a drunken feast and orgy as they were surrounded around the walls of their city of Babylon being overly confident, thinking there was no way they could be conquered, had no idea. Remember, that's the, the scene there where uh, the handwriting appears on the wall, many, many tackle you farce, and you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And that very night, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire very strategically channels the water of the river that used to run into the city of Babylon. They divert the water away and they come right underneath the gates that had been put up thinking that they were impregnable, that the, the walls they had built around Babylon, the storehouses of food they had, and that they had even put these iron gates through the river that ran through the city so that nobody could stop their water supply why they were partying and drunken and thinking that they were completely safe and secure in their arrogance. God used the Medo-Persians by putting the thought in their mind to come to surround the city. They diverted the water and they came right under the gates and into the city and really conquered Babylon in one night with hardly any effort whatsoever. Uh, and the reason why was because God was dethroning them. Uh, and again, God can lift up a king and God can put down a king. Uh, and God can use everything. God can even work in the lives of pagan people to still orchestrate his affairs to accomplish and bring to pass what he wants. And here God is describing their judgment that would come to them. Now, you notice as we get to verse 6, as we've seen in Isaiah's prophecy, and we've talked about this, and we'll see this throughout the prophetic books, now we start to see this dynamic of kind of the the near and the far fulfillment. Something happening in the present and in the immediate in a partial sense, but then at times also the Spirit of God allowing the prophet to see things and to speak of things in a fuller sense further down the line historically. And sometimes we, we find this in the prophetic books, and this is where sometimes it does get a little challenging because in one breath, the prophet may be speaking of something under the inspiration of the Spirit that's happening right in the present day or in the near future or even the near historical future. But then at the same time, again, because God is the eternal God, sometimes God will allow the prophet then in the next breath to see things it's like he goes from the microscopic view in the near historical sense, either present day or the near historical future, and then it's like God takes the telescopic view and he looks all the way down sometimes to the end of the age or to the kingdom age or to the line of, of Jesus and the Messiah when he comes, and it seems that's what happens here. You'll notice verse 6, as God's been pronouncing judgment against Babylon, he then says, watch how verse 6 begins to come forth, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, you want to underline that phrase, the day of the Lord, because that phrase, the day of the Lord, is typically a very clear indication of a set period of time in human history when, and the best way to probably illustrate this, is a time period when the day of man is over. When the time period comes, when the day of man has reached its full, God says, my spirit will not strive with man forever. 
And when the rebellion of man and their ultimate rejection of Christ and all those things has reached its time period, then the day of the Lord begins. And it's not a day, it's a time period technically. The day of the Lord begins where God interrupts human history. The church, it begins with the church being raptured off the planet and the tribulation setting in. And then after a seven-year period of tribulation and judgment, then has the second coming of Christ. As you and I return with him, he comes back, sets up his kingdom, and for a thousand years, Christ rules and reigns. And all of those events, eschatologically, referring to eschatology, last time things, they all seem to fit within that time frame, the time period of this thing called the day of the Lord. So sometimes we have a reference to the day of the Lord, and it's describing judgment and things of great suffering and the wrath of God, describing the seven-year period of tribulation, which we began to look into in our study in Revelation on this past Sunday morning. Other times, it may be a reference to the day of the Lord, and it may be taking us past the time of the tribulation, something regarding the second coming of Christ or the kingdom age. We saw a lot about the kingdom age of Jesus in our last study together in Isaiah chapter 11, where it described all the glories of the kingdom of God. So here it seems Isaiah, talking about the judgment and the suffering of Babylon, now begins to see something that's also looking further down to the time of the tribulation period, because watch what he begins to say. Well, verse 6, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. So again, describing how when this destruction and judgment from the Almighty comes, notice that it will be so humbling and terrifying to humanity, it says man's hands will go limp. The idea is the strength will go out of man. All of his strength and his rebellion and his stubbornness will just be broken in spirit and his heart will begin to melt with terror and fear. Jesus describes very similar language in Luke 21 when he talks about the last days and the time of the tribulation. He talks about men's hearts failing them. The idea is just being overwhelmed with fear regarding what's coming upon the earth and this seems to be what's being referred to. He says, verse eight, and they will be afraid, pangs and sorrows, will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. So again, notice the language there of the birth pangs. We talked about it a little bit on Sunday where Jesus, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21 uses that analogy for the end times events that these things are the beginning of sorrows like labor pains, right? Whether it was famines, pestilence, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, these different sufferings and both cataclysmic events that they're like labor pains. They gradually come with more intensity and more frequency. And here he describes the judgment coming and it is like a woman being in pain towards childbirth. The idea is it's a laboring process that always results in delivery. Once it starts, you can't escape it. When God's judgment begins to fall, there is no escaping the judgment of God. Just like there's no escaping once labor begins, it's going to result in a delivery, and there's no way of eluding the process. He says, verse 8, they will be amazed at one another, and their faces will be like flames. The idea is, you know, aflamed with fear and shock, chagrin. Interesting, he says, verse 8, they will be amazed at one another. Perhaps that's some 
you know, reference as well to how when the Medo-Persians came underneath the gates uh, that where they had diverted the water and pretty much just walked right into what was seen to be the impregnable fortress of the city of Babylon, how shocked they were in their arrogance that they had been conquered really without a fight, and they were amazed how quickly the tables turned and their pride was broken and they were left humbled. Verse 9, behold, again, there's our phrase, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth. The moon will not cause its light to shine. Now, again, here we're talking about great cataclysmic events happening. Uh, Joel chapter 2 uses similar language to what's described here. Jesus himself, Matthew chapter 24, uh, around verse 29, Jesus says there, Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, The stars will fall from heaven, again, perhaps describing asteroid, meteor-type showers, you know, raining down upon the planet. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. So, again, we can only imagine the terror of these kind of cataclysmic events that start to happen where the Bible says all of a sudden these things, stars, constellations, the sun, Imagine what that would be like. He says, the sun being darkened, the moon no longer giving light. So God just brings incredible darkness over the earth to show his disapproval and his judgment coming. Verse 11, he says, and I will punish, God says, punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Now, I tell you, I read that verse and I think, boy, that's a good sobering reminder to people who think that they can behave wickedly and and, and do things that are so evil and that they're never going to answer for it. And God so clearly and so honestly says, look, that's not true. I'm a good, righteous judge. And look, any good judge, if they truly are a good judge, must punish crime must adequately punish evil. If someone gives excuse and allows someone to escape the adequate punishment for their wrongdoing, that's not a good judge. God is a good judge. And so there is going to come a time where God will hold humanity to account for all of the rebellion and the evil and the wicked things that are being done on this planet. And and my goodness, I mean, when we just see some of the things that are going on in our world and in our culture, I mean, the, 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 the horrific things, you know, of sex trafficking and what's being done to our young people and the gender mutilation and the perversion. And I mean, we could just go on and on the list of the wicked, evil things that humanity is doing and thinking that they're not going to answer for that. Uh, and, and look, it's helpful for us to a degree as God's people to hear such things for two reasons. One, because it should give us a compassion to be concerned for people who we at one time were participating with 
Before we came into the light, and by the grace of God, he saved us and spared us and opened our eyes. At one time, we were willing contributors to all the same wickedness and to all the same evil. We were participating in it like everyone else, and by the mercy and the grace of God, he broke into our world and opened our eyes and got us out of that and, and allowed us to escape the coming wrath and punishment that we deserved through saving us and reaching us through his son, Jesus Christ, and the salvation we found in him. But what it also, I believe, does for us as well is helps us not just to have a compassion to want to reach people who are under that if they're not delivered through Jesus, but more than that also to help us because, you know, at times we struggle. Like Lot, remember, in his righteous spirit, it says he was vexed. And, and, and it's hard to watch wickedness and evil and these things go on and to sometimes not want to do something to in some ways kind of put our hand to, to stop it. And I think sometimes it's helpful to just know, you know what, God is going to deal with all that. Our job is to love people. Our job is to try and reach people. It is God's job. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And it's so important, I think, that we remember that someday God will punish wickedness and will punish the world for its evil, because if we don't remember that, we can sometimes almost, I'll speak for myself, I can sometimes start to get a little bit jaded and a little bit cynical and a little bit hard-hearted toward people who are doing wicked, sinful, evil things because I'm frustrated and angry for what they're doing to people's lives what they're doing on this earth, the world they're creating for our children and our grandchildren. And it helps me to know, you know what, Lord, I got to keep a tender heart because you're going to punish them. If they continue, you'll deal with that. But help me not to get overly hard and cynical thinking somehow it's not fair. And then, you know, we almost become angry and stubborn, almost as if we dislike the lost. And that's not a good condition to ultimately be in. So God says, verse 11, don't worry, I will punish the world. It's, it's an assurance, he says. And I will, verse 11, halt the arrogance of the proud. Again, God says, I won't let the proud continue in their stubbornness. Again, when someone's being arrogant, and they're being proud, God says, I, I have a way of breaking the pride of people, halting them, he says, halting the arrogance of the proud, laying low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal, in those days, God says, more rare than fine gold. In other words, it'd be easier to find gold than to find a human being because there would be such widespread death, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Now, again, Jesus spoke, talked about this, you know, that, that unless God had mercy, you know, for the sake of the elect, that no flesh would suffer. Remember, we just saw this past week in our study in Revelation chapter 6, only getting a few verses into multiple chapters that are going to describe the, the, the tribulation period. And already we saw in Revelation chapter 6, in the first few verses, that 25% of the world's population would end up dying as the result of violence and murder and warfare and disease and starvation and economic collapse. And there again, you're talking in our current population, that's about 2 billion people, 25% of the world's population. As I said Sunday morning, if you weren't here, to put that picture in your mind, that is the analogy of all of North America, including Canada, Central America, South America, and the majority of Europe, the population of all those territories being dead all at once. 
That's a lot of people. That's a lot of death on the planet that's going to exist when God's judgment begins to fall. And here he says, there will be great widespread death, even more than finding gold. It'll be hard to find a person because so many will have perished under the wrath and the judgment of the Lord. He says, in the earth, verse 13, will shake the heavens. The earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. It shall be as a hunted gazelle and as a sheep that no man takes up. Every man will turn to his own people and everyone will flee to his own land. The picture there is seeking to escape but not being able to, like a hunted animal trying to escape, but nonetheless it being vain, not able to elude such. Again, we'll see at the end of Revelation chapter 6 where the people are going into caves and, and, and telling the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Again, trying to escape the judgment of God, but it's not able to be escaped. Verse 15, everyone who is found will be thrust through. Everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their children will also be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives will be ravished. The idea is violated or raped. And again, what's being described there is the horrific cruelty that would come against the Babylonian nation as they suffered for their wrongdoings, as they were then conquered, and they had done many of these things themselves, as they were a world empire, where they would go into territories, and they, with great brutality and sword and bloodshed, would not only kill men as warriors, but they would kill women, they would kill children, they would violate and rape the women, and then many times make the husbands watch and, and then kill their wives and children in front of them. And now they themselves are reaping the same as they are being conquered. They're experiencing, in a sense, the same things that they had cruelly done. Verse 17, God indicates exactly how that would happen what the instrument would be. Verse 17, he says, Behold, I will stir up, there it is, the Medes against them who will not regard silver and as for gold, they will not delight in it. In other words, they weren't able to pay them off. Again, Babylon had lots of money. I mean, they were a powerful world empire with great riches and, you know, the hanging gardens and some of the wonders of the world. Under Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar II, I mean, there was great wealth and opulence. But here again, notice, they could not buy themselves out of their problem. They could not pay off the Medo-Persian empire. They weren't interested in their silver and their gold. They found no delight in it. What they were interested in was power. They just wanted to be in control. It wasn't about the money, really. They just wanted the, the thirst of power to be the next world empire. And God says, you're not going to buy your way out of this when the Medo-Persians come. Verse 18, also their bows will dash the young men to pieces. Again, further describing what would happen. They will have no pity on the fruit of the womb their eye will not spare children. So again, just the harsh cruelty, the barbaric treatment, you know, ripping open pregnant women was a common practice. Again, sorry for the word picture, but these were true practices, not sparing children. Again, not just taking out the soldiers, but literally putting to death the children as well. Again, a culture when living in a pagan way, notice, has no regard for children. 
And that's always a clear indication of great moral decline, whether it was the Assyrians, whether it was the Babylonians, whether it's the Medo-Persians, whether it was the Roman Empire, or whether it is now the United States of America, when a country is in moral decline and the judgment of God is looming over it, one of the clear indicators you will see is no regard for women and no regard for the lives of children. And here, it's interesting that it's being described. They have no pity on the fruit of the womb and their eye will not spare children. They don't care. They're willing to harm children. They don't care about the innocence of children, the tenderness of children. No one's standing up for the children. They won't spare them, just whatever they want. They don't care if it means the ruinous effects of children's lives. Verse 19, and Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, it was complete destruction. It was total devastation. Interesting, verse 20, he says this regarding Babylon now. Look what he says, verse 20. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation. The idea is there would be no dwellers there one generation after another. It would become an uninhabited place from generation to generation as the result of the destruction and judgment of God, nor will the Arabian pitches tents there, nor will shepherds make their sheepfolds there, but wild beasts of the desert will lie there and their houses will be full of owls. The idea is the properties would just be vacated and left decaying and empty. Ostriches will dwell there, wild goats and cape will caper there. So again, just animals roaming around the territory of the city of Babylon after it had such great glory. The hyenas will howl in their citadels and jackals in their pleasant palaces. Her time, God says, is near to come and her days will not be prolonged. Now, very interesting what's being described there because it wouldn't happen initially, but in due time, ultimately, Babylon would be completely devastated. And this glorious city that seemed so prominent and so beautiful, had so much wealth put into it, would end up basically being left exactly as God describes it there, completely uninhabited and devastated. And it sat that way for years and years and years. Now, what's very interesting, again, certainly that happened in a partial sense in that time period historically, but it also perhaps could be some indication and some look at this and wonder if potentially it is a reference to some of what may ultimately then also unfold in the future. Regarding Babylon, not just the territory geographically, but we know in the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and 18, there's a reference to the mystery Babylon or the spiritual Babylon that will seem to arise during the last days, which will be a part of a contribution to a one-world religion and to a one-world economic system, this Babylon spiritually that will in some ways seem to come to power, but yet Revelation 17 and particularly chapter 18 describe that when the Lord's judgment begins to fall against this, and it's used the term, the great whore Babylon, that in an hour it will all be devastated and completely destroyed. In a sense whereby what was once seeming so powerful will be completely just wiped out in a very shocking way. And again, people wonder, well, you know, how is that exactly going to happen? Well, 
For some of you who may you know, be able to remember back as far, you remember when, again, where is Babylon? Babylon is in what we call modern-day Iraq. Uh, it's about 80 or so-ish miles away from the area of, of Baghdad. And you remember years ago when Saddam Hussein was on the scene that he developed this fetish, this pet project, seeing himself as sort of the reincarnated or you know the next modern Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And he threw multi-millions of dollars into building a palace for himself there, very close to or, or on the original ruins of, of, of Babylon and the palace of Nebuchadnezzar and those who were a part of that time, uh, wanting to rebuild it, putting pictures of himself there with this effort in rebellion to want to rebuild Babylon and seeing himself as the third or the next Nebuchadnezzar of the people of Babylon. So there's, and to this day, now it sits there completely, interestingly enough, empty with graffiti over the walls and, and it's not even inhabited the territory, but he himself has already made that effort and who knows? It could be that as the last days unfold, that there could be all the money and the wealth that's in the Middle East, that there could be this resurgence of this fetish with the area of Babylon. You remember Babylon originally stems from what? The book of Genesis, the Tower of Babel, where mankind in their rebellion sought to build this tower in rebellion to God. And Babylon has always represented a, a world system that operates in rebellion to God. And so perhaps in some ways, money could flood into that actual geographic area that contributes some way to this one world religion, this one world economic system. But yet then God says in Revelation 18 that all of that, and you can go and read the chapter, God says in one hour, he just wipes it all out. All the wealth, all the opulence, all the power in perhaps a future Babylon, God will wipe it away. And just as described here, it would be left completely destroyed and uninhabited. Well, chapter 14 begins by saying, for the Lord in that time also will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. So though God's dealing with the foreign nation of Babylon, notice he still has mercy, those people had failed him as well, on Jacob, and he still chooses Israel, the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. We read in the book of Romans 9, 10, and 11, again, God has not forsaken Israel. He still has a plan for them. And here he describes how he will still choose the nation of Israel. And notice God predicted, even though they would be put out of the land, that he would settle them in their own land. Again, their own land, because God gave them that land and as a part of his perfect plan, his eternal process, he would bring his people and he will settle them back in their own land. And to some degree, we've already began to see some of that as in 1948, God established the nation of Israel once again, uh, and they continue to have people being settled back in their own land. Verse, 14, or verse 1 of chapter 14 goes on, the strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Then people will take them and bring them to their own place and the house of Israel possessed them for servants and maids in the land of the, of the Lord. They will take them captive, whose captives they were, and will rule over their oppressors. And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord, gives you rest from your sorrow 
and from your fear of the hard bondage in which you were made to serve. So God describes here how a turn of events would come to pass. Israel, because of their failure and their rejection of God, multiple times in history found themselves them subjected to being conquered, whether it was by the Assyrians, whether it was the Babylonians. They end up going into a 70-year captivity in Babylon themselves and numerous times through history, but God's describing here how when he begins to work that there would be a turn of events. He describes here how he still would fulfill his plan. He would settle them back in the land, and that notice he says, they will take them captives whose captives they were, and they would then rule over their oppressors. So now God brings a turn of events, and people who once oppressed his chosen people, they now become subservient to the nation of Israel as God moves them up in a sense and gives them power and exalts the nation of Israel, and those who once were their enemies now become in servitude to them as God gives them rest, he describes, from their sorrow and the fear of the bondage that they had been put in, in such a way whereby, he says, verse 4, and then you will take up, again, he's speaking to his people now, take up this proverb, the idea is this taunt, against the king, now notice he's talking about the king of Babylon, and say how the oppressor has ceased. The golden city, and that's what Babylon had, this golden city. The golden city has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke. He ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The idea is a, a celebration now because now this oppressive king has been broken. He's been dethroned and removed from what things he's been doing wrongly, hurting people cruelly. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. So again, the idea of the picture there is like the trees themselves saying, thank goodness, finally, somebody's brought the ax to you and taken you out from power because he describes there up at the beginning, or excuse me, the end of verse four, how the king of Babylon was an oppressor. And he describes how the oppressor has ceased. The idea is God dethroned and stopped the person who was oppressively ruling, who had taken power and abused their power in a way whereby they were oppressively controlling the people. And, you know, I'm really thankful that no matter how unhealthy a person can be in leadership, that at any given moment that God wants to, God can, God can break that real quick. Uh, and God will deal with that. And, and, you know, what a wonderful thing. Maybe you've seen someone, whether it's a government person you are displeased with or just somebody else on a human level who is just in an unhealthy way abusing and using their power and, and hear the celebration, finally, God, thank goodness, you broke the back of that oppressor. Just get rid of them, God. Do whatever it takes. And, and God's more than able to do that, and he would do it very strongly with the king of Babylon. Now, Verse 9, interesting, watch what starts to unfold in the language here. What you begin to see here is a description of the place of the dead starting to celebrate the welcoming party of the king of Babylon. And again, this is a reference to Belshazzar at this time. 
being basically received into the realm of the dead. Chapter 14, verse 9, hell, and the Hebrew there literally is sheol. It's a reference to the place of the dead in the Hebrew or the netherworld. And their idea of the place of the dead was that was where the dead spirits departed to, still in a degree of consciousness and awareness. Hell from beneath is excited about you. Now, you don't want to hear that. <laughs> That's the last thing you want to hear. The place of the dead heard that you are on the menu. They, they heard that your name is about to be called on the roll books, and they are excited for you in hell. They can't wait till you get there. So Belshazzar, here's hell from beneath is excited for you, Belshazzar, to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you. All the chief ones of the earth, the idea there is other rulers, other kings who had died, other wicked kings who had died and were already in the place of the dead, they're now rallied together. They're raised up from their thrones, all the kings of the nations. In verse 10, they now begin the taunting. They shall speak and say to you, have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sound of your stringed instruments, and the maggot is spread under you, and the worms cover you. So take notice, they start to taunt now from the place of the dead, Belshazzar's entrance into the place of the netherworld, shield, hell, as the Bible's describing it here. And I want you to take notice of something here. In the realm of the dead, notice that when someone dies, just generally, it is not a termination of their existence. It's not the cessation of their existence. All it is is a transition of their location. And it's very important to understand that. Because here the Bible in the Old Testament, and way more light comes to pass as we get into the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, the Bible clearly already indicating in the place of the dead, when these kings died, notice they're there, they're conscious of what's going on, they're knowledgeable of what's happening, we see them speaking in the place of the dead, we see them there knowing people. They knew exactly who Belshazzar was. So again, I want you to recognize here that in the realm of the dead, people don't have cessation of experience. They don't just go to sleep. That, that, this, this idea of annihilationism, your life just burns up and your existence is over, that is the furthest thing from what the Word of God teaches regarding the afterlife. The Word of God teaches that the afterlife is simply just another dimension of forever ongoing existence. It's not the termination of a person's existence. A person is conscious, they're aware, they know what's going on, and again, particularly if they're suffering in the lake of fire, hell, as we know it from a New Testament perspective, they find that that is the occasion where now they will consciously be experiencing pain and suffering and torment forever and ever and ever. And as they're taunting Belshazzar as he's coming in at this moment, 
They're saying to him, have you now become as weak as we? In other words, well, you, you thought you were just so proud and tough and that you were going to just stay in control and now you've been humbled and find yourself here even like the rest of us, they say, verse 10, your pomp has been brought down to Sheol and the sound of your stringed instruments and, and look, at, look at the blanket you get for your jail cell in hell. The maggot is spread under you, and worms cover you. So, again, the Bible describes, doesn't Jesus himself, even when he talks about the place of, of the lake of fire, and, and as we know, the idea of hell in the scriptures, it talks about a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the worm dieth not. And here... This description of being there and a part of the experiential suffering, the, the, the maggot, now take that word picture in your mind there, constantly crawling all over you, spreading, notice the maggot underneath of you and worms for a nice bed cover over top of you. So you get to somehow have maggots underneath of you and worms all over you as a part of being in the lake of fire with all of the torment that lasts forever and ever and ever. Doesn't sound like a pleasant place. But how wonderful that that's what we've been spared through, through Jesus. That, that Jesus loved us so much. The Bible tells us that hell, as we know it, Jesus, it wasn't prepared for us. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the Bible tells us. And though it is a legitimate, eternal dwelling place for those who don't want to go to heaven, if someone doesn't want to go to heaven and they don't want to be with God and they don't want to be with Jesus, they have to go somewhere eternally. And God created hell, the lake of fire, for the devil and his angels, the rebellious angels that followed Satan, but he has no other alternative than to allow people who die and depart who must continue to live forever and ever and ever somewhere in a conscious existence, feeling, knowing, experiencing everything for all of eternity forever. He must provide another place, and this is the only other option if people don't want to go to heaven. And look, I think it's very good not only to have a heart to realize this is where people who reject Christ are going legitimately, but more than that, to realize, thanks be to God, man, that he, he saved us from that that he spared us from that, and that he mercifully has delivered us from that by breaking into our lives and doing whatever it took to reach us. Now, I think it's prudent probably to push the pause button there because verse 12 of chapter 14, I believe the Holy Spirit is allowing at that point the Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet to not just see the king of Babylon himself, but to actually see the spiritual ruler who was behind the wicked king of Babylon, and that was Satan himself. Some commentators see these verses and say, no, 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 it's, that's just continual language about uh, the, the king of Babylon himself. Uh, I find that very difficult to me. What I see is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who's at work among the sons of disobedience, the god of this age, as the Bible refers to him as, who is influencing, you know, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, First John tells us. And no doubt there is a spirit and a power who is directing 
these evil and ungodly world rulers and is directing them to do the wicked, horrible, evil things that they are because there is a spiritual ruler that is behind all that. And if there are two places that we get a good deal of description about the devil or Satan, Lucifer as he's referred to here, it's in this passage in front of us coming up, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. So again, I encourage you, read ahead. Maybe you want to read Ezekiel 28 as well. We get good things about the devil that we learn. Important for us to understand our enemy, right? Because if you want to conquer your opponent, one of the best things to do is to understand your opponent so that you're not defeated by him and you understand him. So if you want to learn more about that, you're going to have to come next Wednesday night. Imagine that. Or you can cheat and just listen to the podcast. However it works. God's gracious, whatever works for you. But why don't we stand together?